Welcome to the Calvary Podcast, a ministry of Calvary Episcopal Church recorded live in Memphis. The Calvary Podcast is weekly sermons, but also conversations, reflections, and provocations about the mystery of God and what it means to be human in the world in need of repair. Well, this fall, we've been making our way through the beautiful and, let's face it, bewildering, at times, parables of Jesus in the, in the Gospel of Matthew. And as we have, I've begun to realize that even if your favorite high school teacher assured you earnestly that there is no such thing as a bad question, it may be possible to ask the wrong question of a text, parables very much included. This might illustrate what I mean. Thanks to my kids, I follow an Instagram account called Airplane Facts with Max. (laughs) Pretty hip. Pretty much every post is a version of the one from this past Friday in which Max, who is a guy with shoulder-length hair, wearing wire-rimmed glasses and a concert t-shirt, looks into his phone and says, I'm an aircraft mechanic, and this is an airplane fact with Max. Today, I'm in the forward cargo compartment of a Boeing 737, and Next to me, you'll see the aircraft's main battery. But something that makes this battery different than the battering ram used by Grand in The Lord of the Rings that was named after Morgoth's Warhammer and shaped like a giant wolf's head after the great werewolf Karsharoth, who was the guardian of the gates of Angband, which was Morgoth's fortress in the far north of Middle-earth, during the first age that was forged by the smiths of Baradur and then drawn across the battlefield during the siege of Minas Tirith and in four mighty strokes was able to break asunder the great gate of Minas Tirith is that this is a 24-volt nickel-cadmium battery (laughs) and will probably never be used to aid the forces of Mordor in the destruction of Minas Tirith. But I still think this battery is pretty cool, so, yep. Sorry, obviously part of the shtick is that Max goes on just a little bit too long about the Lord of the Rings, which may be familiar if you know a hardcore Tolkien fan. The good news is you don't actually have to find this as amusing as I do for it to be a useful sermon illustration. Because if you're reading the Lord of the Rings, your experience will not be improved if an airplane mechanic is looking over your shoulder and explaining that Basic aeronautical engineering tells us that the flying steeds of Nazgul couldn't possibly fly. And it's just as true that you would not want J.R.R. Tolkien to be the one servicing the next airplane you board. If you're repairing an airplane, your questions need to be bound by the laws of physics and aerodynamics. And if you're going to glean any wisdom or wonder from the Lord of the Rings, your questions of that text will need to accept Middle-earth pretty much as Tolkien imagined it, not according to what's plausible in the earth that you and I inhabit, right? Similarly, if Jesus tells a parable that involves slaves and masters or kings, this doesn't mean Jesus endorses slavery and monarchy. He's just using characters from the familiar world that he inhabits to teach us something that's probably true much, much deeper down teaching usually that will ring true in worlds as different as Mordor and first century Palestine, 
21st century Memphis. There's another thing to say before we take up the parable of the talents. When the Bible is the text we're reading, we need to remember that it's actually 66 books, at least, and that those books contain poems and prophecies and letters and parables and songs and legends and competing, even contradictory versions of the very same historical events. We need to know what kind of story we're in before we begin to make sense of it, right? And part of that sense-making project may also be having a hunch about what the overarching story is in which the particular ones all somehow play their part. So here's a quick sketch of the Christian good news, as I understand it. In the beginning, all that God creates is declared good and exists as a gratuitous gift. Things go awry when instead of living in the abundance that is given us, we decide to reach out and grasp something more for ourselves. As a result, relationships begin to break down. Humans from God, man from woman, people from the earth and our own bodies, sibling from sibling. Shame and fear and scarcity and blame all entered the world. And God, who used to stroll with Adam and Eve in the cool of the evening, is searching them out and calling their names while they hide. Ever since we've been caught in this world that is both beautiful and broken. And the project for Christians and Jews alike has been to find the abundant life we were created for, rather than these lives of estrangement, grasping the little we've taken for ourselves, and seeing our neighbors as competitors and threats instead of gifts. So the Hebrew people would bring the first fruits of their harvest, a tenth, and offer it back to God and the community as a thank offering, as a reminder that however much effort and skill they put into their farming, the fruitfulness of the earth itself was an utter gift of God. Later on, a rabbi named Jesus would say things like, we will gain our lives by losing them. He'd tell us to give with no expectation of return, to forgive even those we count as our enemies, and to stop participating in the age-old return of violence for violence. And that age-old cycle was ruptured completely in his death and resurrection, when after this violent world visited its worst upon him, he returned not more violence, but forgiveness, love, even redemption from this sinful world and its ways to us. You and I come to this table to receive that body in which the violence ceased, asking God to fill us all with the spirit of Jesus, to give us lives fired by gift and grace again, not scarcity and shame and fear. At least that's why I come to join you here at this table week after week with these empty, open hands of ours. So the parable. I haven't forgotten about it. If the broader Christian story is anything what I've, like what I've just described, which questions should we be asking of this story? Well, by the time we get to the end of the parable, we're probably all a little taken aback about the teeth-gnashing bit and maybe even wonder whether God is like that harsh master who will throw us into the outer darkness if we don't use our talents well. 
but I think it's the wrong question of this story. When we begin with the conviction that God is the one who calls us, calls to us in the garden, or the good shepherd who takes off after us when we stray, and if we believe the kingdom of God is that realm of gift and grace, not scarcity and fear, maybe we'll pause before assigning every single characteristic of that master in the parable to God. And in that pause, we might actually notice that fear of the master is what caused the man to bury his talent in the ground, wasn't it? Fear's the problem here. It's not the point. So what are the right questions if we believe this story is ultimately about the good news of grace? Well, when we get past our obsession with divine judgment, we may also see that this master doesn't count like we do does he? He passes out talents one or two or five at a time, but one must be enough because he doesn't seem to give a rip about how many you happen to have. All he cares about is that our talents be passed back into the world. Invest them or trade them or do anything at all with what you've been given other than hang on to it in fear and desperation. Because that's not how God created us to live. Which means, I think, we're still very much in the very first story, aren't we? We're still living in a world that tells us we need to hold tight to what we've got once we've gotten it for ourselves. A world that turns us away from the truth that our lives are gifts, that only come fully to life as we give them away, and a world whose troubles still stem from our fearful grasping, clinging to what we think is rightfully ours to hang on to. What's the result? Read the news. Read the news about the place where Jesus lived. Or the news about the desperate parts of Memphis. Or simply remember the broken relationships we've all known in our own small lives. An outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth is a mild metaphor for what humans can create at our fearful worst, wouldn't you think? But we're here. And I mean, you and I are quite literally here in this place at this time, trying to let an old parable and maybe an even older creation account shape our lives today. Because I think we still believe Jesus when he tells us that there's another way to live. Even in this broken world. Our questions and our prayers and our actions just need to be grounded in the realm of God that Jesus told us to watch for and to trust not the grim and grasping one we think we have to settle for. So to that end, I'm going to leave you with a prayer. It's a prayer of Walter Brueggemann's that we adapted a few years ago at a vestry retreat. I think it's a prayer for help turning from our talent-burying ways toward the abundance Jesus promised is still possible. It's a little longer than the prayers you're used to, but I want to read it all. Loving God, you have set us in families and clans, in cities and neighborhoods. Our common life began in a garden, but our destiny lies in the city. You've placed us in Memphis. This is our home. Your creativity is on display here through the work of human hearts and hands. We pray for Memphis today, for North, South, and East Memphis, for Orange Mound and Cooper Young, for Berclair and Central Gardens, 
Fraser and Evergreen and Raleigh. We pray for our poorest neighbors and for powerful people in banks and offices downtown. We pray for people from Boxtown and for the new urbanites. We pray for Memphis's sisters, Germantown and Bartlett and West Memphis and Millington and Olive Branch and South Haven and others, and even for Nashville and Jackson, Jerusalem and Nairobi, Shanghai and Port-au-Prince, and a thousand other cities connected to our own. In all our neighborhoods this day, there will be crime and violence and callous money-making. There will be powerful people unable and unwilling to see the vulnerable who are their neighbors. There will also be beautiful acts of compassion and creativity in all these places. Forgiveness and generosity. Neighbors working together for a more just community. Help us see this place as something other than a battleground between us and them, where our imaginations are limited by win-lose propositions and endless rivalries. Show us a deeper reality, God. Show us your playground and invite us to play. Like the city of your dreams, make this a city where those who were once poor enjoy the fruits of their labor, a place where children are, long, are no longer doomed to misfortune but play safely in the streets under the watchful eyes of healthy old men and women, a place where formal, former rivals and natural enemies work and play together in peace and where all people enjoy communion with you. We pray in the name of the one who wept over his city. Amen. If you're curious about Calvary Episcopal Church, we are an eclectic bunch of Christian people who don't all think the same thoughts or dress the same way or vote for the same candidates or even believe all the same things about the mystery of God and what it means to be human. But we do believe that we need each other because of our differences, not in spite of them, and that God calls us into unity, not uniformity. Subscribe to the Calvary Podcast at calvarymemphis.org slash podcast or wherever you get your podcasts. Visit Calvary in person at the corner of 2nd and Adams in the heart of downtown Memphis, Tennessee.